welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for How I Got Here, FocusWire and Mozio's podcast about travel and transportation. Uh, today with us uh, is Ben Frank from Rotable. Rotable was founded in 2019 and is the easiest way to sell aircraft parts. I'll let Ben elaborate a little bit more on what that means, but thanks for joining us, Ben. Of course. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so, so we like to start every sorry <laughs> we like to start every episode with the same question. So you know, let's start by having you tell us how you got here. Sure. Um, so I can just give the short version, uh, which is. You know, we work in aviation software broadly. Uh, it's not something that uh, everybody is super familiar with, uh, but I had studied this in university or something, I guess, as close as you can to aviation software that, that's actually a major. Um, so uh, I went to engineering school, studied aerospace engineering. Um, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who wanted to, to necessarily be a pilot or an astronaut from, you know, from when they were in the crib, but I, you know, had some interest with it, uh, some interest in it in high school and college and knew I wanted to be an engineer more broadly. I uh, found myself kind of in the plane world and, and really enjoyed it. Did a few internships, uh, did a job after college uh, in, in actual aircraft engineering and airline consulting. So I had some experience in the industry. Uh, and, you know, I think after a few years doing that, I, I knew I wanted to work in in aerospace, but I, uh, you know, I wanted to be in New York, which is, which is uh, where I live, where my family lives, uh, rather than traveling around all the time and being a consultant. Uh, and that kind of led me to start my own thing with, uh, with a, a classmate from university, uh, who's now my business partner, who known for about 10 years. And uh, when we started out, we were actually doing a different aviation software business. So David, we've actually talked about this, but there was another business called Seer, which you know, we can get more into this later, but essentially sold aircraft usage data, something that's not really relevant to Rotable anymore, but was an interesting business in its own right. And uh, that's how we got started. And, and about two years in, it kind of morphed uh, morphed itself and, and Rotable, as it currently exists, kind of came into existence. Uh, we changed from a data product to more of a SaaS product. And... Um, you know, that, that's what we've been at for the past two years is kind of just growing this SaaS product that's, that's targeted specifically at the aircraft aftermarket. Um, so it's, it's everything about the way that aircraft are maintained and the way that airlines source parts and repairs in order to keep them flying. Uh, and we, you know, we aim to be the backbone of that ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, we started out, we were two people, now we're about 14 and, you know, nothing is... We haven't cratered yet, so um, I think that takes us to. Well, I, sh I shouldn't say that now that coronavirus has happened, but um, that that's kind of takes us to today in my mind. I see. Well, so I wanted to delve in. You mentioned Sierra, and I remember that that's about when we met. And if uh, I'm not mistaken, you were selling a lot of that data to uh, major financial institutions. <laughs> I'll say uh, and. Um, I'm, I'm curious, kind of, you you started with the data play, moved to SaaS. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Yeah, it seems totally out of left field uh, when I when I say it now. Um, you know, it didn't feel that way because it was incremental the way it happened. 
when we started out, we actually had an idea. Um, we, we wanted to to make software that reduced waste in the aftermarket. So we saw manufacturers, airframe manufacturers, in the fixed wing and the helicopter world, uh, who were, you know, they don't just produce planes; they produce spare parts also for a lot of their for for their planes. Uh, and you know, they had massive amounts of inventory, piles of parts sitting around, but still you know, had trouble getting these parts to the right operators in reasonable amounts of time, in, in reasonable service levels, seven, 14 days, whatever it is. So they're spending a ton of money on the aftermarket, but still not really making their customers happy and not making as much money as they could. Uh, and, and so we had this idea that, okay, we could do something around stocking strategy and we, we could build this beautiful system to try to help manufacturers uh, optimize what kinds of parts they were going to make and, and who they were going to be able to supply them to and where they should stock them. It turns out that product was just totally not something anyone needed or, or wasn't really specific enough, I guess you could say. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful idea, like I said, but it just, you know, I, I think it was trying to do too many things and, and didn't have a clear enough target user. Um, and so we sold zero copies of that. Uh, no, no one ever bought it. No one ever came, even came close to buying it. Um, but in order to on the road to making that, we collected a bunch of data sets that we thought were gonna allow us to make this model of spare part demand. And one of those data sets was aircraft usage. You know, where are aircraft going? When are they going in for maintenance? When are they flying more or less? You know, what airports? Where are they sleeping overnight? Those kinds of things. And um, we, we had this very authoritative, very clean data set of, of what all these aircraft were doing. And it turns out that even though the product was not the end product was not saleable. This data set was very interesting to a lot of people. Uh, and, and so we ended up finding customers for this data set itself uh, in insurance companies uh, who were looking to track their, their uh, asset portfolios, in investors who were looking to track things that you know, they might invest in. Um, uh, other examples, operators who just have their fleet and want to know, where is it? Uh, maintenance companies who wanted to know Okay, who's, who are the aircraft that are coming to my airport and who can I sell my services to? So, you know, that, that was really the data play. And I think the way that turned into Rotable, like I said, is kind of gradual. We, you know, after a few years, we kind of said, there's customers for this, but there's also a lot of competitors offering this. Um, this is probably not a great long-term business for us to be in for the next 20 years. Uh, and this data is getting more and more commodity just as a data product. Um, and there's a lot more we can do if we try to reimagine the original vision here and take another stab at it. Um, and so Rotable kind of was the second attempt at that original, um, that original product, but like a little bit more specific. You know, it just did one thing for one small group of people. And I think that's why it was... I like to think maybe that's why it was more successful. Can we can we delve a little bit more into kind of what Rotable is? And so it's like it's basically an aircraft parts uh, marketplace, right? So you, you talk about the aftermarket a little bit here. So if I'm, I, I this is me guessing here, as I think I'm as naive as maybe some of our other uh, listeners are. I, I assume that means after a plane has been sold, the market for all the parts to then replace things on the plane is that what the aftermarket is? Exactly. So, you know, you buy an A320 or you lease an A320 or whatever it is, uh, you know, you're going to spend, let's call it a million dollars a year and just, you know, parts, whatever, um, maintenance and inspections and new bearings and new seatback screens when a kid punches a pencil through the back of the seatback, whatever it is, right? You're going to need lots of things. Um, and, and that's like what I'm calling the aftermarket. 
So Rotable is a system for sellers in the aftermarket. These are distributors, manufacturers, repair shops to, to, to get their goods to the airlines uh, with, you know, with less pain, I guess you could say. And uh, hi, Ben. And how, how was that done before? With a lot of, uh, a lot of paperwork, a lot of faxes, a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of one of those very cool um, niches that still kinds of, kind of ran, you know, like it's the same way that it did in, in you know, in 1992 or whatever. Uh, if I'm Delta and I wanted to, to get something, let's say a bearing, I'd go and I'd send 10 RFQs let's say to a bunch of different vendors who, yeah. who I think have that bearing and they'd get back to me and, and, and maybe a day or two and they'd say, Hey, I, I have this thing or I don't have this thing and here's the price for it. And then I'd negotiate with them a little bit and ask them for some, you know, some uh, diligence paperwork to kind of prove that they actually have the part versus that they're just going to go buy it from someone else and sell, resell it to me. If they give that to me and I, I'm okay with their paperwork, then I'm going to pick out of the vendors that, satisfy my requirements and I'm going to give them a purchase order and then they're going to acknowledge the purchase order, send me a sales order, send me a, uh, do, they're going to initially issue a pick ticket internally. They're going to send me an invoice then they're going to send me a credit card authorization form or a credit, uh, a credit application. I'm going to fill that out. I'm going to send it back. They're going to ship it, send an Jesus. airway bill, all this different stuff. And that's only like about half the steps, but all of these things are like email attachments and faxes and, and yeah. you know, it just kind of yeah. takes four to seven days to work through all the, the goop of this stuff. It's, it's astonishing that you would, you would assume, and this is perhaps my naivety about the, 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 the minutiae of the aviation industry, that the, the main manufacturers, whether you're a Boeing, an Embraer or an Airbus, would have some kind of system in place like this for the aircraft that they manufacture. Yeah, so so Boeing, the bigger OEMs, it's a little less chaotic uh, than than it is with other vendors. Just because you're right, they've made some IT investments and they have a portal where you can go and you can sort of look for stuff and send in a request for a quote a little bit more seamlessly. At the same time, most of the stuff you buy on the airplane is not from Boeing. Once you own the airplane, most of it's from distributors or the actual component manufacturer. So you're going to go get the avionics from replacement parts from Talis or, or Honeywell or whatever. And you're going to go get the uh, paint from PPG and you're going to go get the, you know, whatever from whoever made it. Okay. And I, I just last one from me for a second. I mean, you, you had the original product, which was the, 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 the data product as you called it. And then you went into, into the current, essentially the marketplace how what's the what's the kind of time scale we're looking at between the first one and you realizing that maybe you should pivot into something else was that a few years was it what was the time scale yeah uh it's probably on a couple years uh rotable didn't have so we seer started in 2016 uh mid 2016 and then you know rotable has kind of gradually come into existence over the last couple of years um, with it really, with a really gathering steam in the last year uh, when, when there were started to bring on uh, really grow the team um, and, and really expand outside the U S and, and uh, take, take some steps to really grow it. So I would say probably took a couple of years for us to, 
start looking at other things beyond just the core data product. Okay. So I, I, what I think is most interesting about kind of what you're doing, uh, Ben, is, you know, there's a lot of us who kind of start in the B2C world and end up in B2B, but it's a lot easier to be like, well, I take trains and there's a system behind the trains and you end up learning about the system a little bit. And hence you get a Silver Ale or an Amadeus or something like that. Um, but usually the types of people create businesses like Rotable are someone who literally worked in aircraft part maintenance or something for 20 years at American Airlines or something like that um, to even know that the problem exists. Um, and I feel like you're two to three, four layers deeper than any of us are into like a part of the industry that barely gets talked about. And, it's, you know, so I, you know, it's, there's a lot of questions I think I have about that, but you know, I'll start with one, which is like, how did you like come to even like know that this problem really exists? And like, and do you like, what are your suggestions for other people figuring out other problems like this that aren't just, you know, already obvious to the, everyone else who just travels normally? And this is my, it's my favorite type of problem for that reason is that it's, it's kind of like the secret duct tape that does hold it to get, hold the industry together. It's not the only secret duct tape. I mean, it's, they're all over in other little areas, but I think this is one of those things that really is a totally critical piece of infrastructure, the part supply chain, um, you know, and there's Delta's buying a billion dollars worth of things, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's real, it really adds up to something, but it's not, um, you know, it's not something that most people interact with. Um, you know, strangely, actually, a lot of people who go to business school ask about this and have some familiarity with it because there's this company, Transdime, which is a manufacturer of uh, certain types of legacy parts, uh, which has been featured in a lot of business school case studies for some reason. I, I can't tell you why. So whenever we talk about what we're doing and we're making software for the maintenance repair and overhaul industry to anybody who's been to business school, they always, they always start talking about trans time. So I think, I think some people know, know a little bit about this, you know, for just random reasons. Um, but I think you're right. Most in the travel industry, it's a little weird. And, and I guess that my recommendation would just be that you have to, you have to see it to know about it. Um, for me, that came from uh, the experiences I had as a consultant um, and the experience I'd had as a pilot and as an engineer, like in different, just seeing different angles. Um, you know, I think there, there's really no shortcut to that. Uh, you can do customer research once you have an inkling that you, that something might exist, but you can't, it's hard to just pull it out of thin air unless you've seen it, I guess. Sorry, um, so I, I think I want to quickly, you said you were a pilot. Like I must have missed that. If you've mentioned it before, you were a pilot. Yeah. Um, amateur just put it out there um I, I was never never did that for work um but it was um you know it, it was kind of in college when i got really interested in aviation i started flying at a nearby airport as well uh planes and helicopters and that was kind of one of the ways that i learned about the industry and got involved with it um and you know you got to take the plane in for maintenance and you have to have someone sign off on it and they have to do things to it and so i think you just get start to get some exposure uh from all these different angles how did you uh, how did you come up with the or how did you go through your own customer discovery did you talk to manufacturers first or did you talk to airlines first we started with the sell side uh or we are we exist on this the seller side i guess you could say and that's mm -hmm. the manufacturers or the distributors or the repair shops uh you know airlines also sell stuff because they have excess inventory of, of parts yeah. that, they, that they sell all the time um, but we, we really started with the smaller businesses and it's, it's much easier to get access 
to, to talking to smaller businesses and building for them because they don't have, I don't know, Ariba and Salesforce and SAP and all these things that, you know, enterprise salespeople have spent years jamming down the airline's throats. Um, these, these just big enterprise SaaS solutions, you know, the distributors and the manufacturers don't have any of that stuff. You know, they they tend to be a little bit smaller businesses who, who are much happier to talk to you, to have you help them. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, you don't need to take them out for golf and steak dinners. <laughs> Interesting. So it's, so just to, you know, to recap there, you started with these kind of small parts manufacturers and it, it, what's interesting is I think you've seen this kind of pattern with a lot of the people in business travel. We, so we interviewed travel bank and we also interviewed uh, Duke from travel bank. We also interviewed um, uh, the founder of, uh, or I guess kind of founder of president of Amex GBT. Um, and one thing I think I noticed is that, you know, travel banks go to market strategies seem to be very similar, which there was like, there's not these big enterprise customers have 45 different dependencies. And if you, you're talking about a two year RFP or whatever. And so, you know, was that on purpose or did you, you know, like, or did, would you just kind of stumble into that? I think it's, it was on purpose to go for smaller sellers before anybody bigger. Uh, and, and the reason is just exactly what you said, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's sort of a sales reason and there's a product reason. I think the sales reason is it's it's easier to to talk to these smaller businesses. Uh, you know, they don't, they're not doing necessarily for, formal RFP processes. You can reach them in a direct outbound strategy. You can reach a decision maker at a trade show. Um, and uh, it's just shorter cycle, uh, you know, versus like you said, a two-year two process with Amex or with uh, Boeing to, to do anything. There's also a product reason, which is just that you can produce something useful to them in less time because they don't need to integrate with, with everything under the sun. Now, we, we did take a very integration-heavy approach to the product early on um, because we sort of said from day one, the product actually does need to integrate with their inventory management system to provide them the value that we want and to have the, the sort of stickiness that, that we think it will need. Um, but you know, it's still much easier to do that with a smaller company than it is, than it is a bigger company. So I wanted to go back to something you said before. So Sierra was, you know, Rotable V1. Um, and you eventually, you know, you did a, an admirable pivot, you know, kind of to selling the data after, after the original failed product. And then this is basically kind of a second pivot. Um, one quick question, then a follow-up question. Are you still selling that data to anyone? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to sound too defensive here. I won't, I wouldn't call it a failed product. Okay. Um, no, it's okay. It's totally fair. I mean, I, the, it, it, you could, you could call it that. Um, I think it's fine to call it that. Um, For what it's worth, I meant the first one. You said that the yeah. one that you got in zero, you sold zero users or something like that. And then oh, this yeah, came yeah. out of it. That's what I meant, but go on. Now we can call it a failed product. <laughs> okay, cool. Product. <laughs> uh, no, so Seer, we're not doing anything with that. Um, Seer still exists uh, and, you know, still has, uh, still as a business with customers, you know, with a team supporting it. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily doesn't have the kind of uh, really exciting and vision that something like Rotable has, at least to me. Um, but it's, you know, it's very much still, still, uh, you know, a going concern. So, yeah, my follow-up question to that was, um, I think it, it takes a lot psychologically to change tack like that. And 
I know this from, you know, Mozio's nine years old and, and, you know, we started uh, back in a more traditional thing and we've had to shift our business towards doing a lot more on demand and uh, the world of new mobility and stuff like that. And um, you see uh, people in our industry sticking with the same thing they've done for 15 years and, and kind of like head in sand thinking, well, this is where I make my money and I'm going to continue going further down this pathway. And I think it's, it's not a business, uh, you know, even it's not a business challenge. It's, I feel like it's almost like a psychological challenge more than anything else to kind of uh, pull your attention away from something that is making some money and, and, and divert it to someplace else. So I, I don't know how you thought about that, but I'd love to, you know, you did a pretty uh, about, you know, abrupt about face here. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a moment when when you go through that, when you ask yourself, you know, do I really want to, after getting this off the ground, even if it's not where I might hope it would be in my wildest dreams, you know, it's somewhere uh, and it's taken a while to get there. And so um, do I really want to go back into the thick of it and start from zero again? Or do I want to go to Puerto Rico and, you know, whatever, I just like sit on the beach somewhere or and run a pick. lifestyle business or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pick your equivalent place, whatever, whatever it does that for you. But I mean, I think the, th- that's sort of, you know, if I'm being honest, like definitely, I think there's a moment where, where, uh, you know, at least I had that thought. Um, but, it, but I think we were, I was pretty interested and pretty excited about this problem uh, and really felt like it was an opportunity to build for a group of users who had, who hadn't had anything built for them in the recent, you know, in the last 10 years and, uh, and, and to really build a greenfield app that I think had a lot of potential. Um, and so, uh, you know, I didn't have the thought about Puerto Rico for too long. Okay. And Ben, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, the aviation industry is so big. It's so diverse. There's so many, there, well, there are so many parts. There are so many airlines. There's so many, storage facilities there are so many maintenance facilities in in locations in thousands of places around the world how have you considered and thought about expansion where do where do you start from that you know you said you're a team of um forgive me if i've got the number of team of 14 people i think you said a little while ago how do you think about scaling up and where do you go first for that so it's both um you know there's two sides to this that I think are, are a great benefit of being in the aviation industry and, and then a great challenge, which is that it's so international, right? And so to really succeed and be a lasting business, you need to be everywhere uh, yeah. because, and I'm sure you see this in other, you know, non-maintenance aviation businesses and travel businesses too. Um, you know, we can't just have point of sale in the U S and, and succeed and be a winner. Um, we need to be everywhere. And, so that's, that's part of the challenge. Uh, but I think where it helps us actually is that when you, it comes to software, it's a little easier because there's a global standard in aviation. You know, mostly businesses trade in dollars. There's some, you know, there's a little bit that happens in other currencies, but parts, mm-hmm. you know, airlines are used to paying their biggest expenses for fuel, for leases in dollars. And so, yeah. you know, occasionally in euros or pounds. So that helps us. Uh, also, almost everyone speaks you know, very good English and uses English for business. So when, when it comes to internationalization of the product, you know, we get a huge head start because most of our users are, are doing the same thing no matter what country they're in. Yeah. Um, with, with, you know, some places in Asia being a little bit different, but I would say for the most part that holds true. Uh, as far as physical presence, I think there is definitely, we run into the problems of providing on the ground support and, you know, fast response times and, uh, you know, having a network that extends to different places and, and 
uh, that's just, it takes time to build the network. Um, I think today we are, we have a uh, reasonable density in the Americas and in Europe, um, uh, in both in the UK and in continental Europe. Um, you know, I think with Asia, it's still a little bit more, it's still earlier for us. Um, although we do have some, uh, so I guess I don't, we, we haven't so far had a, had a, you know, uh, a, we don't have a war room where we have the map, like a map where it's colored and it's like, you know, we're going here first and then we're going here and then we're going to expand to here. It's, it's not so, it's not so methodical as that yet. Um, I think more it's like, you know, we, we, you know, we wait till there's a critical mass in a country who's asking us and then, Hey, we need you to support this thing or this, this currency or this, um, you know, local address format or whatever it is. Right. And then we do it and we, you know, we, we get some local references and, you know, uh, get them to, to, to help us out there. And you know, going back to this 14, you know, 14 person team, if you had a hundred people on your team, would that be, that expansion would be, would it be for sales? Would it be for tech support or would it be for something else? I mean, what does, what does expansion give you? Does it just allow you to have, as you said, people on the ground in markets that you just frankly can't reach at the moment? Yeah, it does. I mean, once you get start to get bigger and people are paying you more money, right? They start to expect things like certain kinds of SLAs, you know, that requires, um, yeah. Um, are all the listeners going to be familiar with like what SLA stands for? Yeah, yeah. probably. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> okay. I saw no acronym, so I just wanted to. Uh, <laughs> no, no, sure. I think SLA is a good with it's, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that, you know, that costs money. That's reliability engineers. Then, you know, they're going to want uh, fast support in their language. That's, you know, support yeah. uh, expense and, you know, it goes on and on. Right. So each thing has a cost. People start to expect things as you get bigger. But um, I think probably if we were to have a hundred people, yeah, it'd be a lot in, you know, in product product and engineering um there's just there's just so much to build uh and yeah. you know we're, like any software business right there's just there's just too much to build uh and then of course you know it, it, some in sales and marketing as well because uh we're we're an extremely lean team and you know you just can't canvas the world with a couple a couple people um yeah. so i think i think that's that's kind of the way i think about it at the same time you know 100 people would the business would probably crumble, uh, crumble under its own weight at this point. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we're, we need a few steps before we're there. And just the uh, last one for me for a moment. I mean, it's, how did you, how did you come upon the, uh, come upon the, um, the business model and did that have to change over time? And I'm, I'm assuming it's, a, is it, if it's a, a SaaS product, is it, um, is it kind of a renting service? How does it work or a commission? How, how did you come up with that? And did you have to tweak it with any resistance or anything like that? So it's, it is, it's a, it's a kind of standard SaaS um, uh, monthly or annual mm. fee model uh, where customers are, are paying us a certain amount for a subscription, which varies based on, you know, their tier of kind of how much business they're doing through Rotable. Um, and, uh, and then there are a few kind of other optional services they can tack on and things like that. Uh, it's, it's nothing too crazy. Um, we did iterate on it, uh, you know, a couple of times, actually first to, to, first to raise the fees and to lower the fees, uh, and then actually to raise them again. So, um, you know, I think that's something that probably continues to evolve forever. You know, it's like never yeah. like, like with airlines, right. They have huge staffs of people to, to, uh, change the pricing every hour 
or you know it's 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 maybe not that <laughs> complex for us um but right, you know it does continue to evolve well, yeah. how was this how is this for mozio david did the did the pricing change a lot over time no. I mean, we're not technically SaaS, so it, uh, we're technically per transaction. So we just, you know, we do some tinkering, but we, I can't say we have uh, legions of people trying to uh, do as much revenue generation as we could otherwise. Though this price has is, is definitely made us think a little bit more along in, those direct, uh, in that direction about how to maximize profit, which brings me uh, to, you know, kind of uh, what's going on in the world right now. Um, needless to say, uh, all of our uh, businesses, well, I think Kevin's uh, business and, and writing about all of us uh, in crisis might be the only one thriving at the moment. Uh, I, but, I couldn't possibly comment on that at the moment. <laughs> so, but, uh, but, you know, for the rest of us, right, obviously uh, businesses way down or non-existent um, for if you're grounded, um, you don't need spare parts anymore. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about how, how you're looking at this. You see a lot of uh, SaaS providers in the, um, in the business, and, uh, you know, giving free months uh, to, you know, their clients to try to help them get past things uh, Mozio has certainly been the beneficiary of uh, you know a lot of our software providers doing that to us. Um, I'm curious what your you know two two things one one what is your outlook on the on the market and two like how do you see this impacting the part of the travel industry that you uh, deal with most uh, you know specifically uh, you know all these small mom and pop you know airline parts manufacturers maybe not mom and pop but you know smaller than Boeing let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it really is a crisis for a lot of a, this whole ecosystem because uh, all the cash that's going into the airlines, what little cash is going into the airlines and what little cash remains is going to the workers, uh, you know, as, as it probably should, um, you know, and is going to, uh, is going to not the vendor base, other, things other than the vendor base. Um, and so for our customers who are, you know, the, the vendors to the airlines, uh, you know, they, they still have to supply parts, but, you know, they're not really getting paid uh, or they're getting paid net 30, but really 90 days, you know, or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and they just have to extend air credit to the airlines, you know, and, and sort of just if, if they want the sale. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's really, it's tested a lot of these businesses and, and, you know, not all the businesses will survive, although I think most of them will, um, you know, it's, we've definitely had to, we're definitely chosen to uh, extend, uh, extend certain like preferential pricing and, and uh, pricing for, for during this time, because I think you just don't get around it, right? I think if you want to keep your customers and you want to be, to be good to your customers and they don't have money to pay you, but still need the product, uh, you know, you, I think there, there's really only one, one thing you could, that you should do. Um, and so uh, we, we did have to do that for, uh, or have chosen to do that for for a good number of of our customers, um, and um, and probably will do that for a while uh, because, you know, I think strangely actually rotable, you know, is is something that is sort of more useful during this time, um, but less interesting to, to to companies because they don't have you know they're not looking to buy stuff. So I'll give you an example of that. You know, if you get a, a sale from an airline today and you're trying to fax them a credit card authorization form so they can give you payment information so you can process their sale, you know, the seller can't go to their office and use the fax machine, right? So how are they going to process that sale? So something like Rotable, which allows you to do stuff digitally that you used to do in an analog way is actually much more useful when you're working remotely. The problem is no one cares and no one wants to 
to, to hear that if it costs money, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I think other industries have said like, um, this is like two years of digitization happening in a few months. I think Satya yeah. Nadella or someone from Microsoft said that um, when they were looking at the Azure sales going, you know, going through the roof. Um, and it's really, that's what we've seen as well, which is that there's, there's just so much digitization and adoption of technology happening just completely by necessity. Um, so also at some level, we don't want to miss out on that, right? And if the thing that we have to do is, is uh, <laughs> offer the product at a reduced price, I mean, that's a, that's a low cost to pay um, for for uh, for uh, those customers, and j- just a last one from me, really. I mean, in this kind of vein around coronavirus, how are you as a business? I know you talked about what you're doing with extending payments and things like that, but what have you had to do yourselves as a business to kind of just kind of get through it? Because presumably, because you've had to do those things with your customers, there becomes a, a point where things get a little bit lean, perhaps on the cash flow front for you. What have you had to put in place, whether it's from a leadership perspective or a business model perspective, to get through this indeterminately long period? Yeah, so we're we're lucky where our sales don't directly correlate with flight volumes, which is the case for most of our customers. So we're right. we're not as exposed to the to the direct forces as as many of our customers, but of course we still do have to be responsive to it. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's no, uh, we, we're in a position where we don't need to make any kind of layoffs um, or, uh, or, or do anything, uh, do anything drastic. We're, we're in a position of, I think, relative, uh, rel- the, the luxury of relative strength. Um, and, um, and so I think we're, we're being very conservative um, about our, our expenditures because we don't know how long the impacts of this are going to last, but we've avoided any kind of, um, uh, you know, drastic, uh, drastic action. Well, Ben, thank you for your time. That was a super insightful look into, I think, a part of the travel industry we don't often hear about. Uh, This has been How I Got Here with Mozio and Focuswire, our podcast about innovation in travel and transportation. And thanks again, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.